We believe that we have to be very tired and trained to almost death. Otherwise, you know, we will look a very, you know, unhealthy way. Mm. But those things aren't healthy mm. either. Yeah, exactly. And so what happened, what did happen when you stopped running and went to walking? Uh, nothing. I, I mean, there were a couple of instances that I thought, yeah, being lazy, I don't know about this. But as I started changing the way I ate and overall all the different changes, my periods started getting you know, shorter and I got a regular cycle. Mm. I had a regular cycle. I ate like a standard person at regular meal. I didn't need, you know, this is another thing. For years, I've been obsessed about the next meal. Do you know what that feels like? Having breakfast and wondering, when is lunch done? What, what are we going to have for lunch? What is there for lunch? And I remember, and people, friends of mine, we talk about this. Isabel always carries several snacks in any bag that she has. That is not normal. And I thought everyone spent their whole days thinking about food and I was the only one that was being outspoken about it, but it turns out it's not the case. The start of the new year gives us an incredible opportunity to reflect on all that we want for 2024. If your goal is to finally start seeing some improvements in your PCOS that you can actually maintain until this time next year, then our OV app is perfect for you. We identify what's driving your PCOS symptoms and set you up with the right treatment plan, which includes about five small but really powerful changes to what you're eating and how you're living. And as you'll hear from these stories, those small changes actually work. But as well as this, we also give you some drug suggestions that you can talk with your doctor about if that's the route that you want to take. We give you all the information that you need to see improvements in your symptoms, whatever your New Year's goals. So head to ovie.io the links in the show notes and start the questionnaire to find out what's driving your PCOS today on the podcast I'm interviewing the wonderful Isabel I wanted to interview Isabel especially at New Year's because she has been doing our program now for years with this experience comes wisdom and also a breadth of symptoms and experiences both good and bad she suffered from weight gain, acne, irregular cycles and fertility challenges. But as you'll hear in her story, and indeed most other stories on here, her life isn't a fairy tale of everything working out perfectly. There have been ups and downs and trauma, but her simple lifestyle tweaks have helped her weather these ups and downs. And by keeping things very simple, she's been able to maintain these for years. So hand over to Isabel to enjoy her story. Isabel, thank you so much for joining me here and sharing your story with us. It's um, great. And I know you've got a young child and it's the end of the day for you and you have done, I can, I know from having a child myself, you have done so much to be here. So thank you very much for all of the organizing and thinking that you've done to get yourself to where you can actually come and do this podcast with me. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And so what I would love is if you could take us back to where you think that your PCOS journey started. Sure. So I love how you frame it as PCOS journey, because it's not the same as when did your PCOS flourish? So I, in 2020, so about three, almost four years ago, in the summer, I stopped birth control, which I had been on for at least 10 consecutive years. And in the previous years, also on and off quite regularly. 
And so the thinking was that I would want to have a child in the coming years. And I knew that sometimes people struggled for whatever reason to get back their period. And so I just wanted to see what would happen. I went on to have quite a lot of symptoms. So, I mean, you name it. I had hair loss. My face started growing acne like crazy, like cystic, angry acne. I put on a lot of weight despite exercising a lot and being quite good with my diet. I had a lot of hungry attacks. So I probably had like anxiety peaks, you know, that I would, I don't know, I would eat too much comfort food. And then I just spiraled. To be honest, I spiraled, my symptoms spiraled. And three months later, I had no period, by the way, in case it's not obvious. I had no sign of a period for more than 100 days. And I had put on about 10 kilos in I don't know if it was the span of two or three months, despite exercising almost daily, sometimes even twice a day. So nothing added up. The math wasn't adding up. No calories in, calories out, overcompensating with exercise. I was really anxious. I just, I was a mess. And so honestly, I was at a loss. I remember thinking this had something to do with my period, but I went to an OB and I asked and mind you, my mom has cysts in her ovaries and she has a lot of the PCOS symptoms, but she had never been diagnosed. So why would I think that I had this? And I remember asking, do I have cysts in my ovaries? Because I had heard stories in the past. No, you don't. And then I just started Googling. And I, was, I guess I was just lucky because I started Googling and I found you and I listened to so many podcasts, by the way, while running, way too much running. And I remember sometimes running way too long and thinking, oh, this person said that this is not good for their PCOS. Maybe I should do, shouldn't do it. So anyway, long and behold, I read a couple of books. I struggled with a UK GP because I was living in the UK at the time. And I managed to get an appointment with an endocrinologist. This person said that I had, you know, it was like just opening a book about PCOS and all the symptoms were there. And he was quite understanding, which was really nice. And so, yeah, in a very, like, in a nutshell, I would say that's that's how it all started. Mm, yeah. And so looking back before you went on the pill, were there any signs and symptoms of this? Yes. I mean, again, like by the book. So mm. I had a late period. Uh, I want to say it was when I was 13, but it could have been later. I just remember within my class in school, I was one of the late ones. And the whole thing about regularity I remember when I moved to the UK as an adult and someone asked me, how frequently do you have your periods? It was such an alien question to me. I said, how would I know? Mm. So that's how irregular my cycles were. I never had a regular cycle, not 20, not 30. Maybe I had three cycles a year or something like that. And nobody asked. So I guess I never shared it. And mind you, of course, I had like horrible acne, but who doesn't as a teenager? Like some people mm. get very lucky. I was not a lucky one. I did balloon as well quite a lot. I had hunger attacks as well when I was young, but some teenagers do as well. So, you know, now looking back, it was quite obvious. And also I had, by the way, I was very anemic and I still, and I had very high cholesterol as well. So, you know, mm. had I spoken to someone who was aware of all of these and could, you know, put all the pieces together, then it would have been a very clear diagnosis. But you know, I wasn't that lucky at the time. No, but at least, I mean, at least obviously you got onto a good pill, right? Like that helped with symptoms. And and I think that's 
you know, like while, yes, it doesn't help to regulate your period, it, you know, like at least it was helping with the acne by the sounds of things, if at the very least. That's how, that's how I started on, on birth control. That that was the first sort of like line of attack against mm. the acne, which by the way, it helped to a certain degree, but it didn't clear it out. Like I had yeah. to take a lot of Accutane, a lot. Mm, right. So how many rounds of that did you have to do? Because I think this is so good for people to hear because like the amount of people that I talk to that are like, yeah, I've had to do at least three rounds of Accutane and everyone else says that one is should be enough. And it's like, well, no, not if you have PCOS. This is super common. So I don't know how you would consider a round, but my mom was against it when I was young because they didn't give it to her, which is mm. not a great thing. And so only when I was in university, I could go on my own and speak to a doctor and they could prescribe it. So I was quite old when I got into Accutane. I was 21, I think. And they had me on a super high dose. Mm. You know, when, you, right. when you're, I don't know if you've experienced it, you get really dry everything. So your face dries out, which is what you want. However, your knuckles, depending on the dose, your knuckles can also like get so dry that they bleed. And also your lips and things like that. And you can get also extremely tired. And I was at uni. It wasn't great. I remember my finals, like, you know, just trying to make it to the fin to the finish line. But I think I was on 60 milligrams a day, which is super high dose, considering my weight, right? Because they adjusted per weight. Mm. I was a somewhat tiny person at the time. So, but it was at least a full year. Right. Yeah. So I think like in New Zealand, what they would do is they would give you, it's generally a small, I don't know if it's standard amount. Actually, no, I don't know that, but they might adjust the dose, but they would give it to you for a certain amount of time. And then that should, they say it should only be a one time drug, but a lot of people with PCOS get remission and maybe two or three years later, they might have to do another round and then another round, which is what I mean by having to do. But but it sounds like for you, what they did was probably a longer time for, and at a higher dose. But also, yes. Yeah, so they started off with the, the standard dose and then they upped it a little bit. And then because I had like a few cysts that otherwise they said that they would have to like surgically remove. Wow. Uh, yeah. No, it was, it was quite bad. So they just threw like all the bombs at it. Yeah. Yeah. I was really struggling towards the end. I have to say that. Yeah. 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 And so when I say before, like, it sounds like at least they got you onto the right pill, like it helped a little bit, but not. No, no, it, yeah. it, it, it helped a tiny bit. And it also helped in the sense that it gave me the false sense that I was somewhat regular to a certain degree. Oh yeah. I mean, mm. there's nothing like not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. And in hindsight, is that what you thought? You had no idea that that wasn't ovulatory. I had no idea. If I could go back and talk to my teenage self, I mean, if I had all this knowledge, I, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah. And that's the thing I think that, you know, like so much of medicine should be informed consent. And I just feel like so much of my past was not informed consent. Not it's not because it's not the full truth, right? It's saying this will yeah. regulate your cycle. Even if they just added one more sentence onto that, which was, this will give you a bleed, but it will not make you ovulate, which means that but when that's you the this, you will be back to where you are now. But the fun fact is that I didn't even bleed. So they really? sold it to me like, oh, there you go. Aren't you lucky? And I was like, I guess I am lucky. Mm. It was cool quite bizarre I have to say yeah 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 and also that's a bit of a cop-out answer too it's like oh well this is why you know like you're probably not on the right estrogen dose or something like that but 
Yeah, it's that. Yeah, that's a bit of an interesting answer as well. And then, so what happened? Was there anything else so during that time? So that you were on the pill, like you said about how your weight increased when you were younger, and like, did any of that mm. change while you were like during this time when you're on the pill, or was that still a concern for you? No, no, it has forever been a concern of mine. My metabolism, I did a metabolism a metabolism test once. And I remember I was quite advanced in my taking care of myself. Let me call it like that journey. So I was training. I was taking care of my diet. No fad cereal diet or anything like that. No proper food kind of diet. And I remember thinking, you know, just tracking calories for some time. It doesn't seem that I can eat the same amount that other people can. And I'm not talking about the super lucky ones. I'm talking about the average, you know, person out there. So I did this test and there was a scale that was like a traffic light, like mm. red, amber, green with a little animal in case you didn't get the colors. <laughs> and I scaled on the amber towards the red with a little snail. And the guy that was reading my results to me said, yeah, your metabolism is on the super slow <laughs> kind of level. I said, yeah, well, I mean, it all kind of makes sense. So yeah, that's, that's, that's always been an issue for me. I, I, to be honest, I also think it's a bit of a generational thing. So I'm a late eighties kid. And I think mm-hmm. anyone growing up during the nineties, probably early two thousands as well, there was this obsession with, you know, trying to be as tiny as you can. And, you know, some people manage to very unhealthily get to a point. Other people just don't have that body type. And that was me. I've always been very athletic. I put on muscle very quickly. And I've always done a lot of sports in school even. And so, you know, it was, it for a long time, I felt very uncomfortable in my body, which isn't great. Yeah. And I think you're right. It, it was a, it was a rough time to grow up really. Like when you didn't have a body type that suited that, when you weren't that, what did they call Kate Moss? Heroine chic? Like, yes, oh something God. to be proud of? Like what? It's, yeah. I mean, it was that, it was that era. And it was also the era of like, low fat that anything with fat in it was a demon you know margarine was the best thing invented butter was the worst thing you could eat like all of those things low low fat was the fad but again unfortunately if you're like us and have a little bit of insulin resistance that's the worst thing because we're just like replacing fat with sugar especially in products that needed fat for palatability you just had to add sugar into them and so yeah like double whammy bad for us yeah because I also have I I think I forgot to mention but I have quite bad insulin resistance so that was the first thing that I had to get you know a hold of to be able to get on track when it comes to my periods to everything hormonal that was I think the keystone for me was just balancing my blood sugar levels yeah and that's the we have I did skip over that sorry because I I kind of knew this about you but that's a good (laughs) kind of when that happened, is that kind of what you found was like your main driver of your PCOS? Was there anything else that was driving it? I mean, yes, although I've lived not so much now, funny enough, because I'm a mom, I've lived a very stressful life at many different periods of my life for different reasons. Sometimes it was family related, sometimes it was work, probably it was, you know, all around quite stressful. And I'm a person that, you know, just goes with it and chases things and and you know I was living in a very big city so overall that didn't help my lifestyle was probably not supporting me in that sense so yes it was a little bit of stress which I thought was fine you know who's not stressed if you live in London 
You just uh, try to do yeah. too much, right? Like it's that, that's hard to get everywhere, everything. You just try and pack in too much. It's yeah. It's the whole I will sleep when I'm dead. Yeah, maybe not. And and also too, you add into that all of the endurance exercise and long exercise and high intensity exercise that you were doing to try and maintain your weight, right? Which is very natural for someone who has always struggled with with weight and not it, it not making sense. And especially then being told by someone you've got a slow metabolism. So you're thinking, okay, well, all I can really do to control that is exercise more and eat less. Correct. Correct. I was just pushing in the wrong direction, just even harder. Yeah. Doing more of the same. I mean, and I say this with the utmost empathy because this is exactly my story too. And and I'm, you know that, but, and, you know, we're trying our best. We're trying to do what we think is the right thing but actually it's working against us, especially when our stress bucket is already so full from living in a large metropolitan city, chasing your dreams like you were, dealing with family things, everything else that goes with along with life. And, and our stress bucket was just wildly overflowing. So so for you, what was the what do you think then made the the biggest difference for you? Or how how did you how did you control those? two factors or work with your body more instead of working against it so I quit running almost altogether and I started only I mean I was already walking quite a lot so I kept that and I kept the resistance training so I was more than putting on more stuff I started deducting things that were not helping I started taking inositol and then I was put later on on metformin and then I just did the protocol because Mm -hmm. I thought well Let's see how this goes. And two weeks after taking an hospital, I got my first period and I couldn't believe it. I thought it was witchcraft. Like, oh, no, this is just, you know, it's not correlation. It just, it just happened. And I'm trying to see things where there aren't. And then I got a period, I think, 35 days later. And I couldn't believe it. And, you know, I kept on listening to all the podcasts that you had and listening to all the stories and how people had done different things with the protocol. And I was like, well, you know, because at the same time I was reading several blogs and a couple of books. And I said, there seems to be a lot to these. And I'm a very structured person. So, I mean, I have nothing to lose. Someone has made these and there is a structure to it and a logic to it. And so I did the protocol. So say this was all kickstarted February of 2021, while I was still in lockdown in the UK, mm-hmm. I started the protocol, I think May or June of that year. And that changed it all. Yeah. Yeah. And and this was during quite a, you know, stressful time as well for you. So, I mean, I'm just thinking yeah. back, to that, we we're talking about that stress bucket and man, like, again, we've just added a huge bunch more stress into that too. But isn't it amazing? How I was ha- going through a horrible personal situation as well which didn't help at all and but isn't it amazing though that our body can respond so quickly you know given the right tweaks right and that's the that's the bit that I just love is when we can find those drivers and then put in place those right tweaks rather than like I mean you did you did make quite a dramatic change in terms of stopping your running and going back to walking but obviously you were seeing that and going I'm not feeling good doing this or there's something about that that I mean we're not saying that every person with PCOS can't run but it was that you obviously mm. weren't recovering from that or you there were there were there were obviously symptoms there that were driving that change right and I had been running for a long time and I had been 
increasing the mileage mm. and the intensity and everything. And you know, after it's not that there was one story about someone that was training too hard. You had several stories about people with PCOS that were training way too hard. And you know, you listen to one story, another story, several stories, and it's like, well, you know what? Maybe I am one of those as well. So what do I have to do for trying it out? Yeah, yeah. And it and it is amazing too, because it also gives you that permission to to try it, right? Because so much mm-hmm. of the time we we do it and we go, oh, well, I couldn't stop that because then that would be lazy or that would be just me. I'm just looking for an excuse, you know, like your mind plays. Or worse, <laughs> or worse if I stop running, I'm going to get even more fat. Do you yeah. know what, like how heavy that is? That was so heavy. I still remember. And I don't think this is spoken about enough. You know, we believe that we have to be very tired and trained to almost death. Otherwise, you know, we will look a very, you know, unhealthy way. Mm. But those things aren't healthy mm. either. Yeah, exactly. And so what happened, what did happen when you stopped running and went to walking? Uh, nothing. I I mean, there were a couple of instances that I thought, yeah, I'm being lazy. I don't know about this. Um, but as I started changing the way I ate and overall all the different changes, my periods started getting you know, shorter and mm. I got a regular cycle. Mm. I had a regular cycle. I ate like a standard person at regular meal times. I didn't need, you know, this is another thing. For years, I've been obsessed about the next meal. Do you know what that feels like? Having breakfast and wondering, when is lunchtime? What, what are we going to have for lunch? What is there for lunch? And I remember, and people, friends of mine, we talk about this. Isabel always carries several snacks in any bag that she has. That is not normal. And I thought everyone spent their whole days thinking about food and I was the only one that was being outspoken about it, but it turns out it's not the case. So having internal peace is invaluable. And I remember having that realization one day, like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not obsessed. It was to so say that I would have lunch at a Spanish time, say circa 2 p.m. Mm-hmm. At 12, I had been already fighting demons, you know, about like all the different food scenarios. And I remember once just sitting down, chilling not being anxious at all about what I was going to have for lunch that was a massive win for me yeah that's isn't it just such that you're like wow the brain capacity that has taken me the last 20 something years of my life thinking about that all the time and and worrying about it when it's not in your control you know when you're at someone else's house or when you're traveling and you don't have control oh the the just the like anxiety of that so much, so much, because I traveled a lot for work. And anytime I'd be in a conference or anything, I remember just sneaking around food anywhere, anywhere, as if I had been, you know, I don't know, in a war zone and like deprived of food for like a very long time. It just didn't make sense to me. Yeah. And that's the thing that also it changes so quickly, right? Like this, how many weeks of doing this did that change for you? Like after you started the, the program? Honestly, I would say maybe a month. It, mm. it wasn't even that much. It yeah. was it was drastic. Yeah. And, and it does. And that's the thing is you go, wow, this is such a small change that can have such a dramatic improvement in my quality of life. Because really that's quality of life, isn't it? Just not having to think about that stuff. is it, People that haven't had it don't understand. But it, when you do, you go, wow, yes, I 
a hundred percent if I didn't have to think about food all the time and my life would be dramatically different and I could I could put that energy towards so many better things so many yeah so obviously as well the reason that you went off the pill was that you were starting to think about having a family in the future so what kind of so after your periods regulated what happened in your story from there so I used the fertility awareness method I think it is so basically I tracked my basal temperature with an app and I tracked other things so that I could pinpoint when I was most likely going to ovulate so I could time intercourse at the right time I am quite a control freak (laughs) and I thought you know because of my age so I started trying when I was 35 and I had PCOS everyone was quite dramatic about whether I could get pregnant or not so you know with all of these like you know lurking in my brain I thought well let me try to have as a calculated approach to it as I can so that if anything goes wrong at least I've got the data to speak to professionals saying this is what I tried this is what I know please help me out and I don't think that's that control said, at all I think that is just very normal and sensible not a control freak at all thank you thank you I just feel I just feel like this is not spoken about enough and mm. people just think that babies are made like I just think that many people think that you can pregnant any day, you can get pregnant any day that you're not bleeding, and that's not the case. Yeah. So anyway, with that knowledge, I I think I tracked three or four cycles before we started trying, and when we started trying, I got pregnant on my first cycle, on my first month. Sorry, yes, of trying. However, I wasn't that lucky because I had what it's called a mis miscarriage, which also not many people talk about, which mm-hmm. is the fact that. The heartbeat that the fetus had is no longer there. So the baby is no longer viable, but you don't know because there's no bleeding. There's no sign of anything. So only when you have a scan, somebody unfortunately has to tell you, and then you have to take measures to either get rid of it naturally. Some people can, other people can't. So some people have to go undergo procedure to, you know, clean that up so to speak uh which is what i had to do um because unfortunately my husband was traveling and if you're alone at home they won't let you at least in the uk just, just you know to let it happen or at least that was not the case for me i think because i was traveling shortly afterwards so that wasn't great however the following cycle not the following because they tell you that the following you shouldn't try because that might be again something that could impact how regular your cycle is. You don't know when you ovulate because it changes things a little bit, just like when you give birth. So the following proper cycle where we could try it, I was quite insistent that I wanted to try because I didn't know if this had happened because of me having any PCOS kind of problem that I wasn't aware of or not. But I, because this was the first time that I had heard about this, I was quite concerned that there might be some problem. And I wanted to know as soon as possible if that was the case so I could do something about it again. So I got pregnant again. However, this is a bit of a rocky story. I had a twin pregnancy and only one of the embryos made it in the first 12 weeks. And this is something that my doctor didn't want to talk to me about. But you know how you recommend that we test for progesterone levels? I had extremely low progesterone levels. I I tested them myself. And I had a private doctor and I told my private doctor several times, Hey, this is quite low. Don't you think? And he was like, no, I think it's fine. And I said, well, could we maybe supplement? No way. So in hindsight, maybe I should have tried another doctor, but Hey, yeah. But anyway, there is a happy ending to the story. 
I have like a very healthy baby, massive baby, by the way. So I don't know what I would have done if I had twins. Yes, I just wanted to <laughs> to say that there's there's always a happy ending. Yeah, and and that is that is amazing. But also too going back to that, it's so hard when you're like, I wish I you know I could have tried a different doctor or something like that. But that's also often not within your control, right? It's and and they are in a position where we where we should be trusting them right and should be trusting their judgment and unfortunately I think that the research is just not that widely known about lower progesterone I think it's getting there I mean the, the new NICE guidelines which is what the UK operates under and kind of their best practice is has at least gone a little bit further in the last couple of years of saying well anyone that's had a history of miscarriages or early pregnancy bleeding should be put on progesterone but the the threshold is still way too high. It's still that you have to have had three miscarriages and then early pregnancy bleeding. There's no talk about PCOS being a risk factor for that anyway. And so that basically anyone that's, I mean, we kind of treat it that pretty much anyone that's had PCOS like should be on progesterone because of, and this is what I what I get all our patients to say now is ask their doctor when, they, if their doctor says, no, I don't think so, say, well, what would be the risk of doing it, right? Because then that is the that is the a really good question to ask because there is no risk, especially when we're just trying to get your progesterone levels up to what we know in the research are the optimal levels. It's not like we're trying to send them into the thousands. It's just like the difference of 40 to 80 or something like that, right? Like going from slightly suboptimal to definitely optimal and going, well, you know, it's 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 unlikely that this would have affected that, but hey, at least it's one thing that we can control, and we might as well when there's when there's so little risk. And this is what I find so interesting about medicine is that they make some weird decisions. Like they they're really really okay with prescribing metformin when we know it crosses the placenta and we know it affects the fetus. Like, but yet we're still so okay to prescribe that during pregnancy. But we're not okay to pre pre like prescribe a natural hormone that your body produces anyway, and we're just trying to top the levels up. It just seems wildly bizarre to me. I know, and you know, with that in mind, and as I have reflected several times about both my pregnancy and my delivery experience, I realized that I had quite a good, at least by his credentials, quite a good doctor. Maybe he was in his somewhat in his sixties or maybe late fifties. I can't really tell, but I made it a point that if I were to get pregnant another time around, I'm looking and I've actually found a young doctor that I have asked a million questions. I'm the most mm -hmm. annoying patient regarding PCOS delivery treatment, so many things. And I, you know, I, I have spoken to about five and only when I found out someone that was open, that seemed up to date and that was open to debate and maybe go with whatever I would prefer. That has been my chosen person. I didn't want someone that was very old school. My experience over here, because I moved back to Spain, my experience here has been that older doctors, they know better. They've always done things a particular way and they're less open to debate or discuss things like the ones that we're doing. Yeah. I mean, this obviously doesn't apply everywhere else in the world or just everywhere, but that has been my experience. And also... Because the person that was I, that I was talking to was younger, I felt it was an easier conversation as it was more leveled rather than someone that is I don't know, two or three generations older than me, where there's like this respect barrier, I know better because I'm older kind of thing. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think that's a really good approach to doing it is just going and being like interviewing them and seeing, do we, are we on the same page in terms of what I want and what I want from you as my doctor? Like, and remembering that. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard though, because it's hard to find someone that's even willing to engage in those conversations, right? Like that's, yeah, that's a really hard thing. Cause you said about like what my preference and delivery, how did, how did your birth and, and, and after that go? You, 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 for, for those who don't know, when you're preparing to give birth, you are asked to uh, prepare and share with your medical team what is called a birth plan, where you say, <laughs> well, if I was able to choose, I would like to deliver my baby in such a way. So with or without medication, which medications? Do I want the epidural or not? Do I want to C-section? Sometimes in some places you can, you know, just opt for C-section. No, I want a vaginal delivery etc. Now, I did walk in with my preferences, but I did say, I don't know anything about delivering a baby. You guys are an experienced team. So this is my plan, but I might just throw it out of the window from what I've heard. And so basically, I wanted to be able to have some medication, but in an, in a, in an ideal world, I would have loved not to need it. And I wanted to have a water birth, which did not happen so I was put on the bath but then I don't know I think I had a way too much instrumentalized experience they took me out of the water to measure how I was dilating I was dilating so well everything mm. was going perfect but someone was on a schedule and that someone wasn't me it was my medical team and so they took me out of the water I did end up taking medication because once you're outside of the water you experience much more pain which always seems a bit woo-woo to me. Like, this doesn't make any sense. It does for some reason when you're in the water. But anyway, so I was out of the water. I did get a lot of relief. And then the doctor started hurrying me. It wasn't quite clear that the baby was in stress or in danger, but he insisted it was the case. In hindsight, I'm not that sure about it. And so they topped up my epidural way too much to the point that I was completely numb. So I couldn't feel anything. No pushing. I obviously couldn't stand up because I had like lost all the control of my lower body. And so I ended up having, so I did have a vaginal birth. How much I did versus how much did the doctor do is in question because I had a major episiotomy, really, really big. Um, and then my baby came out with his hand by his head. So he pushed it even further. So I ended up with a massive wound that healed terribly bad terribly bad so and I remember I remember not feeling anything and in the moment you know you're you've got like all the rush of hormones and you're happy and your baby's there and everything is amazing but I remember that the face of the doctor like really pushing to like you know stitch me up that didn't look easy and it has taken uh, it has taken a lot of physiotherapy to fix the scar mm. which again is something that is not spoken about absolutely what the, the the need for physiotherapy or the the risk of birth injuries no the need of female physiotherapy and i'm not talking physiotherapy like can you squat or mm. does your back hurt no i'm talking pelvic floor i'm talking a lot of dysfunction that can come either from pregnancy or delivery whichever delivery you have and all the work that has to be done with different layers of scars whether you have a scar down there like I do or whether you have it from a C-section, there's a lot of trouble that can come with it. 
and people don't talk about it. Yeah. And so many things that you don't think are related. Like I, I now have quite a bad back injury because I, I don't think core, even though I was like, you know, doing my rehab exercises and things like that, just my, my core strength probably wasn't quite up to what it needed to be when we had a major flood here in New Zealand. We had, you know, it was, I mean, like in the grand scheme of world disasters at the moment, it's tiny, but it was, <laughs> it was quite significant. And I was hauling a hundred liter, like wheelie bin, rub, rubbish bins full of water from that have like, we're, we're having to bail that and then drag them up onto the street and then into there. And, and I mean, it was because it was that sort of in the moment of, of, adrenaline and things like that you do that and but since then I you know quite severely injured my back and that's taken a long time to repair and but probably the you know like when it comes down to what the core thing was that my core strength wasn't really up to doing that like yes I was physically able to but it, I wasn't able to do that safely and and that's where you know, but the same thing could happen if I got back into doing like really heavy squatting or deadlifting again before I was ready to do that, which is what a lot of people see, especially with social media. They see people getting back to exercise oh. and like, you know, especially lifting weights and stuff like that. And it seemed to be a bit of a like a heroic thing that you could go and run a half marathon eight weeks after you've given birth or something like that. That might not actually be so safe. Who knows? You know, it might be for that person if they've had like someone look and, and clear that, but for a lot of people that wouldn't be like reasonable or safe for them to do that. Correct. Correct. But then again, you only see those, you know, videos and pictures on social media and like, oh, I gave birth two weeks ago and here I am with yeah. a dumbbell in my hand. Maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you don't see the other side, which is I mean, I didn't I didn't do anything for four because I ended up having a C section. I didn't do apart from walking a single thing, not even rehab exercises for four months. Cause I, I still felt super tender. I was like, I, nah, it's sore. I don't even feel that it's safe to be doing that. It probably was, but also too, I just didn't really have the time like, or, the, or the brain capacity to add one more thing in. I was back working. I was doing other stuff. I just didn't have the capacity. So yeah, I mean, I, I think that it's, it's, you're so right that pelvic floor physio, and, and ridiculously in New Zealand, we have, we have an amazing public health system. And part of that is something called the Accident Compensation Corporation, ACC, which cover any physiotherapy for any injury that you have. But until last year, birth injuries were not included in that because it was <laughs> pre, it was premeditated. You basically signed up for that. But yet, if you had a snowboarding accident, you were covered. Is it, how that's outrageous is that? Because that's what? unbelievable, especially considering everybody has a mother. I, so too, it's like, so what? Your snowboarding accident wasn't premeditated because you didn't strap that snowboard onto your feet. So, but yet again, birth injuries were. So anyway, thank goodness for some amazing physiotherapists here who have campaigned heavily for that to be covered. That is now covered. But for my group my cohort that we were birthing together that hadn't came into effect yet so a couple of them that had really severe birth injuries very similar to you and that it was possibly not a well handled birth are not covered for their birth injury because that hadn't come into effect yet so yeah such madness but again just so good to hear people talking about it and going this is this happens and so you found the physiotherapy really helpful for that 
for that, you know, yes. healing that scar or like mobilizing that scar tissue. Oh, yes. And I want to tell you, it's not pleasant. It's no. not pleasant at all. It is and not a mess. No. And no, because also it, it, it becomes, if it doesn't heal properly, it, it's very sensitive and it's sort of traumatic in a way. So it's hard for someone to manipulate it, to show you all the exercises. And let me tell you, they're boring. They're really boring all this rehab if you have one hour for you after you've had a baby the last thing you want to do is go and do your pelvic floor exercises honestly it took so much willpower but I was in a really bad place physically I mean like it was it was really bad and it did need a lot of work but now I am sitting like anyone I can squat I can move and I have no dysfunction whatsoever but it wasn't free I've put on a lot of work Mm, yeah and I just said it then before I just said I for the first four months I couldn't be bothered right like that is a difference you mm. were the one that put in that work and I can totally see that that I was it, it takes so much willpower to do those very boring exercises as you said when you've only got one hour to yourself like that is the last thing you want to be doing is lying on the ground just lifting one leg <laughs> literally I feel so seen right now I swear to god I remember being there half dressed reeking of breast milk thinking I'm the most disgusting human being in the planet right now lifting one knee from the floor yes <laughs> so so demoralizing isn't it oh my goodness mm -hmm. yeah but uh, but it, it is the it is the kind of the, the work that needs to be done and and the yeah I think normalizing it like we are now is is so helpful for a lot of people going yeah okay I'm not crazy I do feel the same that this is just like very, very demoralizing doing this, especially for something that, and it's all of that thinking as well about what if, what if they'd done this? What if they'd done that? I wouldn't have been in this situation. And that's, that's a hard one to get over, isn't it? Yes, it is, unfortunately. Yeah. But and, and so for you, the other thing that I often talk about is different experiences with breastfeeding, especially with PCOS. How was your feeding experience? Did you choose to, how did you choose to feed your baby? So I went into it like I went with my breath plan. Mm. I think I would like to do X. However, let's see how it goes because everyone says this is not under my control. Then I had the baby and I don't know whether this was your experience, but having like Isabel before baby is not the same and thinks not the same as Isabel after she had the baby. And I'm talking within days. So I started breast. So I had some colostrum that I had expressed before I went into labor. How did you do that? Was, like that a, was that just a manual? Like, were you just basically expressing yourself manually? Did you use a pump? Like what worked for you for expressing? Oh, no. I, I didn't even I didn't even have a pump so all I knew is that oh maybe you can try and do this so I would like spend a lot of trying trying to do this so from what I was reading it seemed that this experience was quite easy for some people it might be the case it was not for me mm. I just put on a lot of effort into it don't ask me why mm. I just I think I, I get into this like squirrel mode preparing for the winter I do it all the time and I that you know that just kicked in. And for some reason, I thought I had to save this just in case. So I had quite a lot of it. It was terribly hard. It was quite uncomfortable. My, I remember my back would hurt after I would try. And I didn't, I don't even know that I was doing it well. I just had the, you know, the end product frozen. 
I took it to the hospital. I remember I had about 16 syringes, which I thought, wow, I'm doing pretty well. Ha. Until I had a massive baby that had them in the first night. <laughs> All of that. And I was like, okay, this was supposed to be my insurance policy. It's completely useless. Moving on. Put the baby to breast several times. And he seemed to be doing fine. But what did I know? There's several checkups and weigh-ins and whatnot. He was putting on weight. But sometimes I would supplement because I had to stay in the hospital for quite a long time because of my injury. And I remember sometimes the nurses would tell me, oh, he's getting fidgety. He's hungry. And they would stare at me in the eyes, trying to ask for something, but not saying it. And I remember at one point saying, I don't know what's going on. There's clearly something. Can you just tell me? Because they would ask me, how are we going to feed the baby? And I would say, I don't know. What, what are we talking about? And so they were asking whether I was open to give them formula. And then at one point, the lady was really stressed and she said, can I, can I give him formula? I said, yeah, sure. Like, what are, you, are we going to starve the baby? This is dumb. And then I went on to realize that some people feel very strongly about whether or not to give them formula, which is something that I didn't know before mm -hmm. having a baby because I just thought it was a matter of practicality. Anyway, I went home. I had the already tiny formula bottle. And for three weeks, I was just breastfeeding on demand. At week number three, the baby stopped latching. He hadn't been feeling great from what I know now because he would took way too long to feed and that was not normal, apparently. But again, I didn't know. And then I guess he either just got tired of it or was too hungry because I have a very big boy. It's a lot. And so I went to several lactation consultants. And in the meantime, because I was getting really stressed and the baby was getting really stressed, the whole situation was quite unsustainable. I was told to pump in the meantime. Why don't you pump? And so I started pumping and I thought, this is a one week situation. Like I'm going to give myself a breastfeeding holiday. That turned into like nine or 10 months. Because Which is definitely not a holiday. I... Thing is like breastfeeding the hard way. And, and you know, the, the worst thing is that this became an obsession, which again, I'm not sure that I've spoken about enough because I had a really good supply. And I was told I was very lucky. My baby was putting a lot of weight very quickly. Oh, you're so lucky. I was getting so many compliments. Oh, you're so lucky. Are you doing very well for your baby? You're so good to your baby. You know, I was getting like all this positive reinforcement that surely every mother should be doing this. And therefore I was a good mother. And if I were to stop this, I would be the worst mother on the planet. And so I obsessed about it as I do with everything. And I thought, okay, I'll just start exclusively pumping and then enter uh, mostly a Reddit group about what it is, how it works, how frequently you have to do it, your schedule, how many ounces or milliliters for me per day are normal, tracking it, fluctuations in, in supply, do I have enough, how to build a freezer stash and all of these. It was insane, but I did very well because there was a lot of milk, but nobody in this planet would get my boy to latch again so I did that for a very long time yeah and so you ended up I remember you ended up exclusively pumping for 10 months but feeding him for over a year because you had built up such a more than that more, more. than that I'm telling you I went all crazy I mean I had a I had what is called an oversupply which means that you have more milk per day that your baby drinks yeah uh, which means that you can put some aside and freeze it and and build what people call the freezer stash or a milk bank for just-in-case situations. Again, I have, you know, grown up with the just-in-case situation, especially when it comes to food. I'm telling you, I had snacks whenever. So I had this terrible mentality that obviously 
permeated into this situation. So, yeah. And I mean, although that's incredible and that's amazing, you now look back and go, well, mentally that was not great for me, right? I can. No, no, there was a lot of anxiety. There was so much anxiety there. Yeah, yeah. And and what do you think, you obviously think that what perpetuated this was actually quite similar to what a lot of people, how they develop kind of disordered eating is because they're getting positive reinforcement about how they look when they lose weight and things like that. It sounds like a very similar thing. Oh, no, it totally is. So enter the situation. So I, I don't know what the experience of having a baby is like in other countries, but in the UK, you go at certain weeks you take your baby and they weigh them. And so they have these growth curves and your baby should stay within the same growth curve or maybe go up a growth curve, which is celebrated. Now, I've said several times, I had a very big baby. He went over the whole percentile thing. So he was way too big or too heavy for his age to the point that you would see him and maybe consider that he was overly fed. And doctors would say these at the beginning of my meeting with them and then they would ask me right or right afterwards oh for sure this like this is a formula fed baby thinking like the underlying assumption was this baby's overfed because it's formula fed which is bad but the moment i said no it's a breastfed baby then they would take a step back and say oh no no he's not overweight he's wonderful so there's this double standard and there's so much judgment on how you feed your baby that was passed on to me and that obsessed me for a very long period of time that I wish wasn't the case, honestly, because, you know, some people are lucky and can have the feeding experience that they want. Some people can't. And I don't think they should, you know, I don't think people like me should feel like saints. And I don't think people like them should feel misery. Absolutely. I think that is so true. And I, I, I think it's especially in countries like the UK and New Zealand where breastfeeding is so promoted for, you know, and, and that's great. But the problem that we have is that, that what they haven't considered is the effect of that on people that either choose that that doesn't work for them or it literally doesn't when they're in a position where their baby literally stops latching. And, and I had a very similar experience to you. Floss refused the breast at three months and I exclusively pumped, although I was always co-feeding with formula as well. So it's not absolutely not within our control. And, and I actually, we have a similar thing where we go and get the baby measured here. It's called Plunkett, which is a charitable organization. I actually stopped going. I stopped attending after the first session because I was like, it's horrible. I can, I can see that she's absolutely fine. She is absolutely fine. She is not losing weight. And I just don't want the judgment and it's not helpful for me or healthy. And there's not, no real value that you're adding here. You're just attracting. And so I'm actually just not going to attend. And it, which is a shame because so many people have amazing plunket experience. They feel super well, just that they feel really supported and it's great. And they love that relationship they have with their midwife there, but that wasn't the case for me. And I was just, so I just took myself out of that, out of that situation and said, you know what, this is not, it's not, it's not helpful for me. So I'm just going to stop attending, which was the, probably the best decision that I could have made. But then again, you are then at a bit of risk where they might pick up on things that you don't. And so as a mother, you go, well, I, sh I should, I better, I better go because just in case there's something that they pick up on that I, I don't know because I've never been a mother before. So how would I know? 
Yeah, but you know what? I had a friend that had a similar experience to yours, but she didn't she didn't step back from the situation. And so instead she had the same doctor that drilled and she she had such a horrible time. Because my my friend, she's very tall and slim. And so is her partner, tall and slim. And so is her first child. She's a very long baby that naturally doesn't weigh too much. And that, you know, if you look at the parents and you apply a little bit of common sense, it would be quite unusual for them to have a very chunky baby. Well, none of that applied. And they, you know, they made her feel terrible over and over. And sometimes, no, many a night, even if the baby started sleeping for longer, they forced her to wake up to pump so she could push more milk into that baby that, you know, today she's a toddler and she's skinny and tall and she's very healthy. Absolutely fine. And I think this is the, the, as you said, a massive double standard with a formula feeding versus breastfeeding, right? Is that they're saying, oh, well, if you're formula feeding, you must be literally like shoving that milk down their throat. But yet (laughs) there's, if you try to do that with breastfeeding, oh, well, that's absolutely fine. And it's like, hey, hang on, isn't this the same baby that is going to feed until they're satisfied, regardless of how they're feeding? Yeah, it's a it's it's a crazy crazy thing, and and unfortunately there are a few studies are like in the space quite fraught with I think bias. But there was a really interesting one that they did in the US where they took siblings, and I think this is the best study because it there is so much there is so much that can happen when it comes to like a lot of the measures they're looking at with breastfeeding is things like IQ and body weight and things that can be affected by so many socioeconomic factors, regardless of how their baby is fed. And so the one that I love is the one they did in the US where they took siblings. So, cause therefore you take out, strip out all of those socioeconomic factors because they are literally brought up by the same household. So they looked at where one sibling had been formula fed and one had been breastfed. And what they found was absolutely no difference in those babies at, I think it was 30 years. So they followed them for 30 years. No difference in IQ, no difference in in weight, no difference in immunity, you know, because that's the other thing is asthma, allergies, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, yeah, that's the study that I like. Yes, it probably is my bias as well because my baby was partially formula fed. So maybe I'm looking for reinforcement there. But I quite, I think that it's quite a good study because it totally takes out all of those socioeconomic factors. Whereas the one that they like to report on is the Brazil study. Again, great study, but they can't, they say that they've, factored in all socioeconomic factors but I just don't think that you can right like you can't you can't factor in a like a parent that's had to return to work two weeks after giving birth versus one who's had the had the ability to stay at home for for the first year and and focus on breastfeeding so I yeah I think I think that those are quite quite interesting things and and therefore fraught with so much I think that the the reason that they that they are pushing breastfeeding is for is for is for great reasons, but I think what they don't understand is the very very negative consequences that that judging, yeah, the judgment. You could recommend something without the judgment. You could say, you know what, it would be great, but if you can't, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely, and that's it. You know, el- eliminate the judgment. There's so much there's so much judgment when it comes to women and everything that has to do with our reproductive everything whether you can get pregnant how fast you can get pregnant or not if you struggle with that or whether you have miscarriages or how do you give birth because there's judgment on that as well 
how quickly you recover and you have six pack abs and you're a model even if you never wear but all of a sudden you had a baby so surely you should look like that two months afterwards and then they're judging you based on how you're feeling your child and whatnot it's like it's it's so unnecessary and the problem is that after you give birth you're flooded with all of these hormones that leave your brain gaga for at least three months you're recovering from something major you're not in the best you know frame of mind to say no enough so I'm quite you know honestly it's quite surprising that you backed off from that particular because I was not in my best place after I had given birth honestly if someone had told me this is the way you should do x y and z with your baby I would have just followed through my brain was dead Mm, yeah and I mean I think I'm quite lucky that I had support of other people saying that to me as well was just being like this is not just don't listen to it just disengage in that and and that that's probably what gave me the the confidence or the clarity to do that whereas as you said what if it was just me on my own trying to navigate this I likely wouldn't have I likely would have just followed on and gone oh I'd like I don't know I've never been a mother before I don't know what I'm doing therefore I'm just gonna follow this along and and yeah so I think the hindsight in hindsight now based on your kind of breastfeeding journey what would you what would you say to someone who's in a similar position to you that their baby has latched or they didn't have you know like the milk supply or there was something else out of their control that and they're feeling this kind of pressure or anxiety that you were feeling to continue breastfeeding because it was the marker of a good mother so it's quite odd because I gave birth at the same time as one of my closest friends did and we had very different experiences because she didn't have, you know, and I, I'm very lucky that I heard about this in your podcast about changes in breast tissue during pregnancy. This is something that happened to me, but I never thought about it being a mark of a successful or not breastfeeding journey. A friend of mine, I remember talking to her because she was three months ahead of me pregnancy wise. I remember asking her and telling her like, hey, what do you do with the bra situation? I'm reading a control. What type of bra should I get? Several times in my pregnancy, because my breasts changed in size several times in pregnancy. And she would look at me saying, I don't understand what you're saying. Mm. So hers didn't change at all, which should have been a sign that that was not going to go all that well for her. But none of us knew. And so she had... So she gone into the same, you know, not that healthy world of breast is best. I should breastfeed my baby no matter what. But she didn't have the supply. And I remember talking to her early on and saying, let it go. It's fine. You just have to feed your baby. Your baby doesn't care how you're feeding your baby. It's fine. Think about how more convenient it is. You can wear whichever bra you want. You don't have to use a pump. No one is commenting on whether you're breastfeeding in public or not, or your nipple this, or your blouse that. You can wear whatever you want. And so on and so forth. You know, I was trying to give her like very positive encouragement, but there was a family history there where there was a lot of like negative connotation of not breastfeeding, which is funny because apparently her mother couldn't breastfeed because her breast tissue didn't change either. So, hey, you know, but yeah, there was a, a lot of guilt being passed on that fortunately she got to a point that she realized that it wasn't healthy for her, but it took a lot of time and she did take a lot of hormones. Because sometimes if you go to a doctor and you say, I don't have any milk supply, they can try and boost that. Mm -hmm. But what wasn't told to her 
was that if you have a history of mental health problems, this could make it worse. Ah, right. So Dompyridime is probably the drug that they're talking about here. Yeah. Listen, yes, that 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 word. I, I remember her talking about it like casually and me thinking like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And then she spiraled mm-hmm. so badly. And it was only months after when we were talking to someone where they said, didn't your doctor tell you that this can make depression much, much, much worse at a time where someone that has a history of depression and could have postnatal depression. Listen, I, yeah. yeah. So anyway, and I, I took it and I never got told that either. And I mean, like I don't have a history, but they didn't know that. I mean, in, in New Zealand, your obstetrician doesn't even talk to your doctor. Like it's ridiculous, but they, they didn't know that never got asked, never got told like, yeah. So good. Cause also talking to another, another past patient as well, who had a really severe reaction in terms of weight gain with Domperidone. So we'd, you'll hear, oh, really? yeah. So people listening to this, you'll hear loads of different experiences with these, not only just breastfeeding, but different drugs and different, different things. So that's a, a really good thing to know. So, I mean, it's quite, it, it's really helpful hearing this because you, you had this experience. It's not like you're now in the position of saying, what would I say to a friend who was going through this? You literally had a friend at that time, right? Who you were saying. But, but it didn't matter. Yeah. That's what I would tell all, because I had yeah. several friends that went through the same and I would tell all my friends, girl, don't judge yourself just do you know whatever is best for your family and whatever is best for your baby and all this like positive talk and then when it came to me I judged myself to death Mm. and it would be so hard for you as well because you're like but I don't have the same experience I have all this milk and she's the thing she's different she doesn't have the milk so there's nothing she can do about it I have the milk so I have to use it so I felt so guilty about that like Mm. I am wasting so much potential here I could do so good for my baby I could even donate if I wanted to like how like this is no. And then they tell you that when you're breastfeeding or when you're exclusively pumping, they say, this is really hard. Just take it one day at a time. So set yourself a goal. I'm going to do this for this amount of months. And so I would do that. And then I would consider slowly weaning. So breastfeeding less for those who don't know and the guilt, mm. there's so much guilt. So I don't know why I went on for so long. I mean, it, it did get easier because I would pump less but I, I mean, I'm pretty sure that there was a lot of guilt behind it. Yeah, I, I feel exactly the same, right? It's, and it's that, well, I can, yes, it's a, it's a massive tax on my life. Like you know, I'm literally having to every day pick up all my pump stuff and put it in, you know, make sure I like pump when, as soon as I get into the car to go to work and then I have my alarm set for like 11 a.m. and then 3 p.m. and then, you know, make sure I pump it. And it's a huge mental load of that as well. But I, yeah, I felt like that was the one thing I could do, right? I couldn't give her all the milk that she needed, but I could do this little bit, bit. And if I did this, then I wouldn't feel that. But I still, like, it's still a mind game. I still think back and go, what if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? Even though I had all the red flags, all the red flags. So yeah, I don't know. I'm the same as you. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know whether I would have changed it. I don't know whether, you know, I you know, what I'd do next time. But I just think that it's good to hear this and go, you know what, like, we're not alone if we feel like this. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's very easy to think logically, when it comes to other people and other people's experiences. It's not so much when it's about you. Yeah, yeah. Because it's all that emotion, all that guilt. And sometimes it's the, if I can reduce that guilt a little bit, it would be worth it. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, but I don't know if it is. <laughs> That's the way I think. <laughs> because the, the guilt's almost worse than the the toll it takes on you to do it. But yeah, I, I just think it is very helpful or in, enlightening to at least talk about it and, and share these experiences. So that's in terms of your other PCOS, full kind of PCOS journey, if you could if you could give, give teenagers about some advice, what would that be? I just wish teenage Isabel would have had someone that would have taken her to a couple of doctors to get the full picture um, and to know more. This is why I try to tell as many people as I can about what PCOS is and what it might look like for different people so that not only it's normalized, but so more people know about it because maybe that could have gotten to me that and not jumping on the first breath control that anyone gives you. Yeah. yeah. But how does teenage Isabel know? She's yeah. too young to know. Absolutely. And maybe, maybe teenage isn't the right time, right? We Sometimes we need that little bit of, that little bit of maturity, that little bit of experience. And so maybe it's the more, what would you then say to the Isabel that came off the birth control that then had, was like, oh, wow, I'm getting all these symptoms. I've got this, especially that weight gain, that 10 kilos and too much, which people would say, that's impossible. The math doesn't work. You can't put on that much weight when you're doing that much running. And you're like, well, lived experience shows that it's very true. Yeah, yeah, I would say, listen to the people that have been there and that have managed to control it because so can you but it's hard because there's no one track right mm -hmm. it's not i don't know like my son has bronchitis oh he has bronchitis here's a fix i i think of pcos as if it were a tree you know that's why it, it's a syndrome right it can look many different ways it can flourish different ways throughout your life and there's different ways to treat it. And coming to terms with having a chronic condition that you will have to live with and manage differently throughout life is a very hard thing. It's a very hard pill for me to swallow. And, I, you know, and it took a lot of time to come to terms with it. And I would say other people have done it. So can you. Yeah. Just be patient. And it is because you're a successful driven person who has managed to put their mind to everything else in their life and achieve that. And this is the one thing that's out of your control, right? And it is so hard to, and man, out of control, but also now, you know, there are certain parts that are within your control that, and, and you can focus on those parts. But you have to, the problem that I see Claire also is that I've spoken to so many different doctors, not just OBs, different doctors, so many of them now have told me that I don't have PCOS, that I have even questioned myself. Mm. And now I just know if I walk into a place and I'm speaking to a doctor, I it happened a year ago here in Spain. I'm talking to a doctor. I explained to him, I come with like bullet points so I can summarize my, my history to him. I say, sorry, it's going to be a lot of information. Here you go. Now you're up to date. I have PCOS. Looks at me, judges me. And he says, you don't have PCOS. I'm like, man, have you listened to everything that I've just told you? Like, you're not respecting me, but also you're just judging me because my skin is not a mess and I'm not overweight. Therefore, I don't have PCOS. How simplistic is that? He then looks at my ovaries. It turned out that I had a lot of cysts at the time. And then he changed his mind. Like they say, oh yeah, you have PCOS. And I was like, right, see you never. It's like the double standard of the breastfeeding formula feeding. It's like, you're not. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, in some cases, like, 
it's a it's a good thing because it's like okay well I've reversed these physical signs like if you've seen me you know and that is part of PCOS that's part of the tree right the tree might have been had lost its leaves or its leaves were yellow and it was looking you know not particularly healthy and now like it's flourishing it's looking you know it's looking really good and so we wouldn't we if we didn't know that tree before we wouldn't have known that there was ever an issue but if we treated that tree the same way as what it was before, that it wasn't getting the right nutrients, that it wasn't getting the right amount of water for it, because it is a different kind of tree that needs different amounts of water than the one next door, then we're probably going to end up with a very similar looking tree in two years time, right? Because we're not, we're not treating it in the way that it needs to, to work with its genetics. I love, I love the way that you put it. I really do. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the thing is going, okay, I know these, I now know what I need to do to help my tree flourish. And I know what also puts it in the position where it's not flourishing. And those are the things that I can control. I can't control that I have this chronic condition that I will always have to think about those things. What I can control is those little things, those little non-negotiables that I do every day that actually aren't that taxing anymore in my life that I know keep this at bay and help me really flourish rather than, yeah, being a little bit yellow and half and just not thriving the way that I need to be to operate at my best. And knowing that it's okay. We can't absolutely. change it, but you know, we can come to terms with it. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually we can still thrive. We're not abnormal. Yeah. We're not we're not lesser females or lesser humans. We are we are equal and different. we just have to do slight yeah, just slightly different. Slightly different. So I, mm -hmm. yeah, I love that. And I love that analogy. Thanks for giving that to us. So thank you so much for sharing your story as well. It's been a great conversation. I've thoroughly enjoyed having this with you and sharing all of our experiences and, and hearing your, you know, your experience of your last, what is now two years of living with this lifestyle and dealing with this and all of the things that life has thrown at you in the meantime. And I can't wait to see what happens next in your journey. Thank you, Claire. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening in and a very, very special thanks to Isabel for sharing her story and being so open with us. As you've heard, she's been doing our program now for years. There have been ups and downs and trauma, but her simple lifestyle tweaks have helped her weather these ups and downs. And by keeping things very simple, she's been able to maintain these for years. So if you want this for you, then join us in the OV app. Head to www.ovie.io, the link's in the show notes, and you can start the questionnaire to find out what's driving your PCOS today. Now stand by for our disclaimer. The information contained in this podcast has been prepared for the purpose of providing information, including about the PCOS nutritionist products and services, and is designed to support clients' overall wellness. It is not intended to provide medical advice or designed to rectify, treat, or cure any specific medical conditions or diseases. Nothing stated or shared in our podcast is intended to be and must not be taken to be medical advice. Please seek the advice of professionals as appropriate regarding the evaluation of any specific information, opinion, advice or content contained in our podcast.